we don't really even consider ourselves technically an internet service provider. We are a broadband applications delivery company. Welcome to episode 208 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. In this episode, Chris visits with John Brown, president of CityLink Telecommunications. Chris and John have a rich and detailed discussion that reveals the entrepreneur's roots, his philosophy behind public-private collaboration, and they even discuss the pros and cons of the Internet of Things. This conversation runs a little longer than our usual podcast. We want to satisfy those of you who've contacted us and asked for more detail on these kinds of issues. Learn more about the company located in Albuquerque at citylinkfiber.com. Now here are Chris and John Brown, president of CityLink Telecommunications. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with John Brown, the president of CityLink Telecommunications in Albuquerque. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here, Chris. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. I've known you for many years as you've been uh, building fiber networks and certainly, uh, I think, uh, trying to build more than you've been able to, something we'll, we'll be getting into. Um, but let's start off by just a brief description of uh, what is CityLink? What separates it from other telecommunications companies? Certainly. So CityLink Telecommunications is uh, uh, a locally owned company here in Albuquerque. Um, that is the only provider of open access uh, dark fiber um, and uh, telecommunications related services in in the Albuquerque market um, and uh, we're also one of the very first uh, well the first should say uh, provider to bring full gigabit internet fiber to the house where we actually bring a fiber cable all the way up to uh, the person's home and deliver symmetrical you know upload and download speeds being the same gigabit service and we our first home was connected in 2008, um, and we've been, you know, continuing to, to grow. Uh, we're a self-funded company, mostly funded out of uh, cash flow, and uh, profitable, and having a lot of fun. Well, and one of the things that I think of when I think of you is someone who's really dedicated to the future of the internet. Uh, there's people who are getting in this business who are starting ISPs, you know, uh, many of them more recently, I think, who are just trying to figure out how to become millionaires or billionaires. Um, you know, what is your background that makes you so passionate about uh, some of the connectivity? You know, if I, if I go way, way back, almost like uh, Mr. Peabody. <laughs> I got on the internet when I was in high school in the early mid '80s, and I was blessed uh, by being able to do that through a, a an account uh, with the University of New Mexico. They were allowing us high school kids to to get onto their big, huge super mainframes, which was then connected to effectively at that time what we called the the DARPANET ARPANET uh, network, and that was way way cool. And it's been sort of you know a love. Uh, of mine ever since, being able to watch people communicate and interconnect across the globe and see this thing grow. And then I had the opportunity to, to live in Silicon Valley for 10 years um, and work with some of the companies that actually built the equipment that runs the infrastructure. And you know the possibilities are becoming more and more endless as, as broadband uh, becomes more ubiquitously available throughout the, the world. You know, I also was one of the folks that uh, was around with uh, ICANN early on, was the primary technical person that ran 
uh, one of the 13 root DNS servers, the LRoot DNS server for ICANN, for about uh, three or so years. And that also really opened up my opportunities and, and eyes to see what could happen uh, with the Internet across the world. I mean, there, there were times where I had some fairly healthy debates with, with a, a very, very smart gentleman named Vince Cerf. Um, and we discussed things like peering and open access policies and, and various other things that a lot of that I've taken to heart in what we do with, with CityLink today. Well, with you mention open access, um, that's actually something I really wanted to, to get into because as a private ISP doing open access, um, you know, you're in kind of an elite company. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking that um, you might be able to fit all of the privately owned open access networks uh, into um, um, a taxi, all of the owners of those networks. <laughs> um, so um, you know, tell me a little bit about how open access works on your, on your network. We look at the network uh, at a couple of different levels, uh, in, in many cases sort of almost mirroring the ubiquitous uh, ISO, OSI rather, I should say, uh, seven-layer stack model of how the network works. And uh, at, at one level, we have the physical infrastructure plant, the, the dark fiber out there, and, and we make our dark fiber available to, to anybody. You know, the traditional carriers and many of our competitors today to get access to even that dark fiber is uh, either an extremely expensive proposition or it's just not available unless you happen to be a CLEC, competitive local exchange carrier. And then you may have access to some strands of dark fiber if the incumbent carrier, you know, wishes and allows you to do it or you are able to sort of threaten them legally enough to get it done. Um, when we were building this company, we said we wanted to be able to allow enterprise, small business, large business, we didn't care. We wanted to be able to allow them direct access to dark fiber because it gives them better control over their business and gives them better control over their destiny and costs and all of those various bits and pieces that ultimately I hope keeps that business doing business in, in our city or in our community. And then when you move up the level, you know, you get out of the dark fiber, we also provide open access Ethernet connectivity. So you know, we'll sell an Ethernet pipe to anybody at effectively the, the, the same price point. We don't play games with the prices depending on you know, if you're a big company or a little company. Um, and then above that, we sell Internet access both at a wholesale basis to other ISPs and at a, at a retail basis to end users. Um, and if you look at our franchise agreement with the city, when we were negotiating that with the city, some of the terms that we put out to the city that we wanted to have in our legal agreement with the city was that it is the normal and ordinary course of business that CityLink will provide open access dark fiber on a neutral and competitive priced basis. And, and those were very key and important words to us because neutral, competitive, non-discriminatory basis, meaning that we would not sell to customer A fiber at you know, $100 a month and then the other guy the same exact length or distance or whatever of fiber for $10 a month. We, we're going to be on parity with everyone gets the same equal treatment, same equal price. 
one of the things that I really liked about that was that it's in the franchise. So if for some reason you decided to sell your business or others, um, you know, took it over in some way, then that would still apply to the future of that network. Exactly correct. That's actually one of the things that I, believe it or not, I learned out of my relationships with, with ICANN was this whole concept of, of, of the concern about capture of an entity. And so one of my concerns was, hey, we could go, open, we could go build and have me as the business owner and, and leader uh, pushing these open access policies. But let's say down the road either – you know, I got hit by a bus. Well, in this case, I got hit by a a, a backhoe because that's what would kill the fiber, right? Um, or, or I decided to sell the business. Or, you know, let's say bad economic times fell upon us and we had to liquidate out for some reason. In any of those situations, the what I believed to be you know fundamental open access uh, terms and conditions were encapsulated in the legal agreement with the city. Who owns the right of way? So no matter what happened to our organization, whether we sold it or we fell upon bad times or whatever, those terms and conditions would still have to survive to the next entity. Well, let's talk a little bit about who your customers are. You said you have um, some residential customers, and I'm sure you have some business customers. Uh, you just kind of build out to anyone who's interested, or is there a, a rhyme or a reason to how you're expanding? So we have residential, commercial, end-user, retail-type customers, and we have municipal customers, and we have uh, carriers. So we actually provide dark fiber to other well-known carriers that, uh, you know, were I to rattle their names off, everybody would be like, oh, yeah, I know who they are. Right. So, you know, we're the internet service provider to the city of Albuquerque. We just won a competitive bid to do a, uh, effectively another five-year uh, gigabit service for the city. Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you very much. You know, it's, it's, just, it's much more my team than it is just me. You know, our, our fiber to the home, you know, we've done everything. We've done active ethernet, we've done GPON, and now we're back to active ethernet. Um, and so we've played a lot with a lot of different technologies. Uh, but one of the core things about all of our bandwidth delivery is we always want to strive to hit the number that the customer is buying. So if they are buying a 50 megabit service, we want speedtest.net to show 50 megs up and 50 megs down or better. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's um, it's one of those things that customers don't want to hear, oh, there's overhead or there's this or that. They want to, they want to know that they're getting what they're paying for. Right, and part of the overhead that a lot of the other carriers have is overhead generated by PPPoE, which is what they're using from the old dial-up and DSL days for user authentication. And that takes up about 15% of the available bandwidth sometimes. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. I mean, that's one of the, just one of the problems of kind of having these legacy systems for which uh, they're always looking for just the cheapest way to, to increase their value a little bit without actually looking at uh, the best engineering solution. Yes. You know, how can we integrate it into the back office that we already have that we already know and love, and we don't have to change anything. We provide service from 10 meg all the way up to 10 gig, and we'll even provide 10 gig to to a house. Uh, Our business is to provide a pipe. We don't really even consider ourselves technically an Internet service provider. We are a broadband applications delivery company. 
I think you just blew some people's minds, but it's a great, it's a great distinction. And so, uh, let's be very clear about that. Um, so an ISP would be someone who's, um, delivering a, a service, which is connecting you to the internet and maybe, you know, some DNS, some mail, some other things like that. But, but you're separating yourself out from that, right? To us, the internet is an application. Our job is to provide the best pipe, the best IP transport pipe that we can to our customer. And so we look at things like Netflix. Netflix is an application. The internet itself, web surfing, is an application. Telephony or voice is an application. These are all different kinds of applications that are using this ubiquitous IPv4 or IPv6 transport network that we've built globally. And so we don't know what our customers want to do with this pipe. But we do know is that they want to be able to get to lots of different things. So we need to build a pipe that gets them the ability to get to lots of different things without any issues. Right. And that's where I think, you know, there's some carriers and, and they would call themselves ISPs, certainly, um, you know, who are looking to try and figure out how to nudge people and, and, and take a little bit off the top. If someone's going to go to Netflix, they want a piece of the action. But what you're saying is you're not interested in that. You just want to enable the end user to do whatever they want to do. Right. Netflix knows how to run their business. Hulu knows how to run their business. All the video over the top guys and in fact, all the application guys and gals they know how to run their business. Our job is to connect our customer to that application or that set of applications and enable their access to that in a, in a reliable and affordable method. Well, sometimes I think they don't always understand exactly what they're doing. And you and I recently had a little exchange on the uh, First Mile Institute listserv uh, where we're talking about uh, IoT, uh, often called the Internet of Things, which I always joke is the insecurity of things. Um, <laughs> so uh, what, what do you remember that anecdote? What specifically um, was happening that the customer wanted a, sort of an unshielded connection or a, a device that would not be protected in any way? We were, we were recently working with a, a, you know, a fairly old building, 1960s, 1970s building that they wanted to upgrade and put in a, energy management system to make the building a smart building um, and you know so they can control their HVAC and cooling their electrical their lights uh, all those various things and have a much better control over where are they spending their money on ele- on energy consumption and where could they maybe improve it or possibly you know make sure they can build their their tenants you know tighter for it and so they were putting in this equipment it had Ethernet connections and hey that's pretty cool we can plug it into the internet and uh, off we go. And they came to us and asked us for a, an internet connection. And I was perfectly happy to give them a connection. But I wanted them to, uh, to explain to me what they were doing for protecting this infrastructure from the wild, wild west known as the internet. Also known as Russia. <laughs> or China. Or right, right. Script you know. kitties are everywhere. I just like to pick on Russia. <laughs> Or your, your, your backyard guy just down the street. Uh, or, you know, even a, 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 uh, an unhappy employee that, that just recently got terminated. I mean, there's a whole oh, bunch right. of Certainly, things yes. that could cause uh, potential threats uh, or risk areas. And, and the answer that I originally got was that they really didn't need to do any firewalling. Uh, or we didn't have to worry about that because it wasn't like they were plugging in a Windows server or an Internet server. They were plugging in this controller that was going to control the building. 
And I said, well, that's great. That's probably an embedded systems-based type controller. It has a little processor in it and all of that. Um, we still need to really think about you know, the security um, surface area, threat surface area here. Long and short is, is that we had some dialogue back and forth. And at one point, uh, I wasn't really willing to provide them a connection um, because I was too worried that, that they were going to get hacked. And somehow we would end up getting to deal with that. Um, and I didn't want to go down that road. We looked at the systems. We asked them what vendor equipment it was. Within a short period of time, I was able to come back and, and show them uh, with that equipment uh, various uh, known hacks that were on the, the Internet uh, that would impact that equipment. You know, We really had to work with them to help them understand that if you're going to plug it into the Internet, you need to take full security, full threat uh, analysis and take all of that seriously because systems like this uh, can, can materially impact a building and cause all kinds of problems and, and economic harm that you know, maybe an energy management or lighting control company doesn't necessarily think about. You know, it's just plug it in and it's, it's magical because it's hooked up to the cloud. Right. And the thing that I just find uh, somewhat depressing is that this whole Internet of Things, all these devices are being made. None of the I'm going to be a, perhaps a little bit broad, but I'm not embellishing by too much if I say that not a single one of these devices has been built with security in mind. Many of them are not flashable to be updated. And so effectively, every device that you're putting on your network right now that's sort of part of this IoT hype is a Trojan horse for someone to eventually take it over if they would like to. Uh, and I find that very scary, and I just wanted to make sure that people are, you know, kind of aware of uh, of the threats uh, currently and the need to uh, embrace a better threat model for uh, how we're treating our uh, devices. One of the things I've said to folks recently has been, for those of us who are the parents, we teach our kids, you know, the, the concept stranger danger. You, you don't want your five-year-old walking up to somebody he or she doesn't know, and, and they need to be cautious of someone they don't know that might approach them. You know, we teach a lot of stuff about physical security. We teach things about keeping our money safe in our pockets and, and, and having physical awareness. But what we're not doing right now is we're not teaching and bringing to the level of awareness uh, our cybersecurity stance. We're not teaching people to be truly suspicious of that email that just came in that looks like it came from their CEO and gosh darn, he really needs you to wire $18,000 right now. And it's just the little things that you can see in those emails that you know the, the halfway trained eye sees and goes, oh, wait a minute, that's a bogus email. They're trying to scam me. Right, right. Well, we, I want to make sure we have some time to, to talk about what's going on in Albuquerque. Um, so I was, I'm glad to hear that you are working with the city. I know that at one point you were struggling just to get a franchise. Um, but I'm curious what your ideal model is in terms of uh, how you would like to work with, uh, with Albuquerque to um, basically everyone's benefit from your point of view. Well, I think that whether it's Albuquerque or, or almost any other community across the country, I think we're at, a, at an evolutionary point uh, where we need to better embrace you know, solid public-private partnerships. I believe that municipalities have very valuable things they can bring to the table to improve broadband and, and access 
so that we have internet access ubiquitously across our city. And the city has a lot of things that they can bring to the table to do that. And I think that private sector needs to start really looking at finding ways to work with the city and bring things to the table themselves that also looks to make the community better. One of the things I have concerns about is, is that a lot of businesses are looking at their return on investment and their economics in a very short-term window basis and sort of how much money can I quickly grab now? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that when you're in the fiber business and you're in the infrastructure business, you're not really looking at a one-year or a three-year return on investment. You're a utility. You're going to be there 10 years, 20 years from now providing services. And so you should have the ability or you should look at this return over a longer period of time and look at the larger picture of stuff. What does that look like then uh, in terms of how you would uh, – because, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that when I hear the term public-private partnership – um, I immediately think of a couple of things. Um, there's there's some great models out there, um, but there's also a lot of people who just throw that term around willy-nilly to mean anything. You know, for example, for us, one of the great things that in, in projects that we have done is we'll be building fiber over to, let's say, one of the TV stations like we just recently did to, to get them connected. And we were basically a middle mile provider for another carrier. But while we were building that fiber, we architected that route so that it would go by one of the city's main fire stations. Then we were able to bring dark fiber into that fire station to help augment and provide additional connectivity to that fire station. We did not charge the city for that construction. You know, that cost us roughly 18,000 bucks to hook up that fire station and just the direct lateral costs to do that. Right. In exchange, we didn't have any permit fees and we didn't have any permit hassles. And, and, And so we saved on time to market. We were able to save multiple weeks on getting to our retail, our commercial customer, because we were able to get rid of that uh, that potential burden that the city had control over. Right. And it's interesting because I think, you know, the it's, it is that timing issue and the uncertainty that can, uh, it's a much bigger killer than the fees themselves often. Right. The fees are not necessarily the big thing. The, the, the issue is, is how long is it going to take to process your permit application? And, you know, thankfully, Albuquerque on general, is pretty quick about getting permits in and out the door. But sometimes you run into roadblocks where you just have too many people asking for permits that week, and they get backlogged. We had uh, done a show uh, a number of months ago, it could have been last year, about Santa Fe and the uh, investment that they made in the the carrier-neutral facility. Um, What what is your reaction to that? Yeah, Santa Fe came out with with a really novel idea to build a fiber network to try to reduce the cost of, of broadband access in their community. Well, I think if, if I understood it correctly, just to, for people who are yep. listening and may not have heard that show, um, I think they, were, they, they specifically built like a fiber link to bypass a CenturyLink choke point. Is, is that a fair representation? That's what they thought they were doing. Okay. And, and, you know, the devil is always in the details. What the city of Santa Fe wanted to do was they wanted to get from a particular location that connected to long-haul fiber, and they wanted to be able to get that into a building that they could control or have more or less open access with, and then also be able to cross-connect into the central office. And, And the thought process was that by doing so, they were going to be able to reduce their cost of getting access to things like DSL and and other services. And and I think the challenge is 
that they didn't understand completely the regulatory regime that CenturyLink, the, the incumbent carrier, operates under and thus the access to that infrastructure, whether the city built it or not, still had to fall with under the tariffs and the regulatory regime. Um, and so those charges were still going to be there. The, the disappointing thing for us on that project was that we, we had bid on it and the city ultimately awarded that to a carrier that had never put fiber in the ground at all. And they spent a million dollars to build a mile, a mile and a half, I think. Maybe it was two miles worth of fiber. We had proposed a seven-mile project on the same dollar amount. The concern is, is that sometimes you get municipal folks that have a good idea, but they're actually not network or subject matter experts. And so they try to build something, and it doesn't necessarily truly solve the problem. You know, I like to analogize it to what happened in Indiana back in the 70s where they actually tried to legislate the value of pi. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's make it three. I, it doesn't need to be 3.141. Let's just make it three. <laughs> it's easier to do the math that way. Right. I don't think I want my arches and my geometry done with three. I like 3.141. You don't want to cross that bridge. <laughs> nah. Pun intended. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that, that the model we have in Albuquerque is a model that, that is cookie-cutterable. We have a proposal that we've put before the city over the last few years where we would take $2.5 million a year of their recurring telecom expense, hooking up 160, 170 buildings. We would take that recurring expense and erase it forever off of their balance sheet by putting in dark fiber to all these buildings. Are those buildings that they're are they leasing physical circuits from someone currently and that's the cost you would get rid of? Correct. They're currently leasing Metro Ethernet from, from various others to get to those buildings. Sure. Very common. So when they want faster connection to, the, to Fire Station 5, they get to pay more. Right. Whereas with the dark fiber, all they have to do is change out their own routers and equipment that they already are putting in anyway and they could go from 1 gig to 10 gig to 40 gig to 100 gig, and the fiber stays the same. Right, and not just that, but actually in talking with some of the people that have made that switch, for instance, in like school districts, um, there's a variety of other benefits. I mean, you can actually – you need fewer personnel often when you have full control of the network um, yep. because you can basically – you have a better sense. You have more visibility into all the points that where something could go wrong. You're not waiting on hold with that person you're leasing it from while they run their system checks. Correct. The dark fiber provider has a simple job. Does photons going in at point A come out at point B? And if the photons coming out at point B, the light coming out at point B is of the acceptable power levels, then the dark fiber provider's job is done. Right. And then those are also in longer term contracts too. So you don't have to worry that in two years your Metro E connection is going to go up 50% or something like that. Uh, so it gives you as a, as a public institution, having that long term dark fiber contract, tremendous benefits. The way we're pricing this, our deal to the city is, is really threefold. One is we're going to provide 24 strands of dark fiber exclusively for the city's internal use. The second part is that we would put a, a separate set of 12 strands for all pre-K through 12th grade accredited public or private educational facilities. So now, whether it's a public school or private school, as long as you're an accredited school, we'll bring you dark fiber, and you guys in the education world can figure out how to best use that and interconnect to make education better around here. Right. 
I know that for Albuquerque Public Schools, a number that was given to me a few years ago is that they spend almost a million and a half a year on their infrastructure telecom costs, hooking their schools up with Metro E. So we would save the public schools at least a million and a half a year off of their budget. The third was, as we were really rolling on this, is if we're going to make our community better, I know that one of the hospitals here spends over $300,000 a month. So what's that, $3.6 million a year? <laughs> yeah. Just connecting their major medical facilities together for telecom. And we have three or four different major healthcare providers in the market. So we were going to put another set of 12 strands just for healthcare. Now, we're not hooking up to the little sole proprietor doctor's office or dentist office. We're hooking up major medical facilities so that that MRI, that CAT scan, that X-ray, whatever, that imagery can be at a blink of an eye sent 40 miles across town to wherever that radiologist is to quickly look at a picture and go, nope, that, that spleen is about to, to bust. You need to roll that person into surgery now. So hopefully we increase quality of care and uh, increase our, our, our rate of survival on emergency situations. The fourth thing that we were going to do is, is that we were going to put free Wi-Fi at every city park. All of these four items we're going to do and all that we're looking to recoup is our out-of-pocket construction cost. Once we recoup that infrastructure cost, that construction cost, then the city, the schools, the healthcare, and the free Wi-Fi they don't have another check to write ever again, forever and ever. And, and that model works for you because that enables you to build a lot of that middle mile infrastructure that you're going to need to connect uh, residents and businesses and that sort of thing, right? I'm going to make my money off the private sector. I don't need to make my money off the governmental sector. You're giving them the strands. It's not like you're just temporarily leasing them to them or something. They will effectively get an IRU or an indefeasible right of use of those strands in perpetuity. Right. And that's a very... Like it's not it's not something that's odd. That's a very well-known like, right. legal concept. And there's plenty of case law around the fact that says when you, when you legally write that down and we all sign on it, that that's very well defined. So it's nothing unique or, or you know, special weird out there at all. And so that's your proposal. And, and the, the city is uh, considering it, hasn't really acted on it at this point. Well, so a few years ago, the city said, well, how much would that cost? And we said, we figure it'll cost about 10 million bucks to build out 100 plus miles here in the metro area. And the city said, well, we don't really have 10 million that we can pull out of our budget today. So if you can fund this and finance this up front, we can pay you back over time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sort of my response is, well, I wasn't really looking at being a bank. Right. Well, this is, uh, you know, I, I have some sympathy for the people that you're dealing with because, you know, in in the government world, there's a holy line between capital expenditures and operating expenditures. And there's a lot of inefficiency because of that line, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. We we went away and we thought about it. I don't take no as an answer usually. And, and I was able to, to meet a gentleman at, at a an event in Washington, D.C., of all places, um, at a Freedom to Connect event, I'm sure you know. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that because uh, I thought those Freedom to Connect events were terrific. I was able to meet a gentleman there who had recently done a public-private partnership on a fiber project in his community. We got to know each other pretty well, and, and I was explaining to him this project, and he came back and said that he was willing to put the $10 million up at a 6% interest rate. Nice. 
and five-year period of time, um, I went back to the city and said, hey, I got the money, so let's, let's move. And I think the city was a little surprised that I was able to do that. Yeah. And then ultimately, uh, this gentleman and uh, us met with the city, uh, and everybody thought it was a really great idea. And this particular gentleman uh, is, is financially well and easily capable of doing this project. And the city was able to vet him and, and just determine themselves that this was an easy financial thing for him to do should he decide to do it. And that was approximately two years ago. And we still don't have yes, no, or indifferent from the city. What the city has recently done is that they want to build fiber down Route 66. And at a semi-public meeting a week or so ago, the city came out and said that, you know, they've estimated what their cost is to build a fiber, open an open access fiber, but they haven't been able to define what open access really means, down Route 66, and they can do it for about a quarter of a million dollars per mile. And I asked the question, what do you get for a quarter of a million dollars per mile? Because just recently I put a mile of fiber in the ground in downtown central business district of Albuquerque, which is one of the harder places to do construction, mm-hmm. all underground for less than 100 Right, yeah. And they couldn't answer that question. I see municipalities, they're, they're trying to figure out ways to make their town, their city better, to attract new economic development, new businesses, and, and to attract keeping businesses there, and, and to make their place a better place to be. And, and I see a lot of the effort is sort of almost a flailing of they're not truly sure about how to go about doing this, so they're just like throwing things out. And hoping something will stick and it'll sound good. Yeah, I certainly think there's a it's a challenge to figure out who's legitimate in this business and who isn't. You know, who do you listen to? Who do you work with? And that sort of thing. It's it's hard for cities. And uh, to some extent, I, I like to think that that's one of the roles that we try to help play is helping people to understand that. Right. There are a lot of really good a a lot of really good consultants and advisors out there. And then there's a lot of other advisors and consultants out there that have never had to eat their dog food. And and I'll just go one further and say that uh, over the next year, there's going to be more and more of those ones. Right. I mean, that's that's one of the things we tried to to help with, like the city of Santa Fe, is to understand is we've been building fiber for ten years. We've actually hooked up home customers. We've tried lots of different technologies, and we've we've got real life experience on the pluses and minuses, not only short term but long term, and how operator friendly are they? How friendly are they three years later to come back and work on? That's a lot of the value that we've built internally over 10 years is we, we could talk a lot about pluses and minuses of a lot of different wonderful technologies that have come out. Let me just say thank you so much for joining us on the show. I appreciate it very much. That was Chris and the president of CityLink Telecommunications, John Brown. You can access the transcript for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you to the group Forget the Whale for their song, I Know Where You've Been, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 208 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Mm-hmm.